our children's defiance and acting out is often less about them and more about giving voice to the pain, the silent tears, and shouts of anger of the silenced and forgotten child within ourselves. Hmm. Wow. So it feels to me and my own experience is that until we're doing our healing work and we're reclaiming our anger and embodying it, we will can end up being triggered by our children's expressions of anger. Mm. We can end up being reactive when what they're needing is for us to be responsive and able to help them to co-regulate. And because our own fight response is, is getting triggered or on the other side of it, we can become really permissive and kind of go into that freeze mode or that flee mode because we're overwhelmed by it and we're so disconnected so we're not using the power that anger has to offer us and so then we're not able to set and hold healthy boundaries for our children. Welcome y bienvenidos to About Consent, the podcast that sparks conversations about creating consent culture, boundary repair, sexual empowerment, orgasm equality, and raising a new sexually conscious and consent-empowered generation. This is a safe, shame-free, judgment-free zone where both survivors and those who support survivors are welcome. I'm your host, Rosalia Rivera. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. This week, I am talking about anger and why it's so important for us to learn how to transform that powerful energy into something that serves us instead of tearing us down. And for this, I invited Nicole Shiner to join me for this interview talking about anger. This was a conversation that she brought to me to say, you know, this is something that is definitely not being talked about enough. And it's something that survivors are definitely experiencing. And when she presented me with this, I remember feeling struck with a sense of awe at the fact that she's right. We do not talk about this enough. And so I absolutely said, yes, I'm excited to have her on for this week's podcast and to give you some tools. We talk about some really powerful ways to really transform this powerful emotion that if turned inward, it can harm us. But if we transform it, it can empower us. And so I know you're going to get so much from this episode from this interview, I think that you're going to fall in love with Nicole and the work that she's doing. So to give you a little bit of background on who she is, Nicole Shiner is a registered psychotherapist in Ontario, Canada, as well as a published author. Her writing has been featured in the Gottman blog and Elephant Journal. She provides counseling and supervision at a non-for-profit organization and sees clients privately at a wellness clinic in St. George, Ontario. Nicole is a member of her region's sexual assault response team and a mama to a teen son and 10-year-old daughter. Nicole loves helping people connect to their inner expert and learn to dance with their emotions, embracing and celebrating their authentic self and the power of the human spirit to heal and thrive. 
Currently, she's completing a compilation of short stories, poetry, and reflective questions on the awakening journey for highly sensitive mothers. Cole believes world peace begins with inner peace, and I absolutely agree. So I know you're going to love this episode. I can't wait for you to dive in and listen to it in its entirety because from beginning to end, there's just so much to learn. So without further ado, here is my interview with Nicole Shiner. So I am really excited to have Nicole with us today. Uh, as I mentioned in the interview, she is a wealth of knowledge on so many, so many topics. But this one in particular is something that I really believe needs to be talked about more. So I'm excited to have her with us. Welcome, Nicole. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Well, we're, I'm excited to have you. I'm sure the audience, once they listen to this, is going to be enlightened because I think this topic really needs more conversation around it. So let's dive in because I believe that it's not, like I said, it's not openly talked about this concept of like the transformative power of anger and the conflicted relationship that many survivors, Black, Indigenous, and people of color have with it because of their own trauma. So I wanted to dive right into talking about anger because I think a lot of people fear it. I think that they're, we're taught to like just swallow it down or get over it or just to ignore it and be nice, you know, because we're all, I think particularly for anyone who was raised female with this societal idea of what it is to be female is like, you can't be angry about things. So I would love to get your perspective on why do you think it is so important, particularly for people with trauma, to process their anger and not just get over it? I know that was a big question. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So I think it's, you know, we have to back up a little bit in order to be able to process and transform our anger. We have to be doing our healing work when it comes mm -hmm. to our traumas, right? Because Otherwise, the anger is going to come out in most likely in either a reactive way, destructive towards others, or we internalize it and it can be destructive towards ourselves. So trauma is not something that we can just get over. We can just will ourselves to move on with. It is stored in the body, right? It, it impacts the nervous system. It impacts our beliefs, how we feel about ourselves. So we have to do that work and then the anger can become more embodied. It can become more heart-centered and responsive and a fuel for us. So one of the big things with anger and why it's so important that we do identify that anger as part of our healing work is because one of the biggest tragedies, I think, for survivors is the internalized self-blame and shame that happens. Mm. Mm -hmm. And this can happen both because of what is said to us by the perpetrator as well as by society. And if this happens when we're really little, then it also is just that developmental stage and trying to make sense of the world and these things that are happening by people that are supposed to be our caregivers or people that are in positions of power to protect us, authority figures. It's so confusing as a young person. So we'll naturally blame ourselves mm -hmm. um, and sort of feel like we then kind of have some sense of control, you know, and then that's when we get into the woulda, coulda, shouldas, right? And the if onlys. Yeah. And that's 
sets people up to feel that incredible sense of self-blame and shame. And shame is an inhibitor. So mm. it holds us back, right? It holds us back from fully being able to engage in our lives, feel worthy of the things that we desire. So this is where we can have some of that self-sabotage. And it's not intentional. It's often not conscious mm-hmm. because we're not really feeling worthy of that because of the shame that we carry. It can also prevent us from having really close connections with other people right? because shame is isolating. Yeah, that is so, so true. Yeah. So that ability to be able to put the blame where it belongs, which I think anger really helps us to do, it shifts the responsibility, right? Mm-hmm. It was never, it was never your fault, right? It was never the fault. Any act of violence or violation is never the fault of the survivor. And yet, unfortunately, and we'll talk about this a little bit later in the interview, victims often get blamed. Yeah. And repressing anger can also can also contribute to chronic pain and depression. Mm. That, that holding, you know, that tensing and not saying what needs to be said, honoring that voice, we're stuffing it, right? And so that's where, you know, we hear the term depression is anger turned inward. Mm-hmm. It feels and, toxic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And unfortunately, you know, it's, it's, we're, it's like a way of almost continuing to hold on to that harm. And again, it's never anything that we choose. It's just the fact that, as you mentioned in the introduction, because we've been taught to disconnect and be afraid or ashamed of our anger, it's important and we need to use it, but it almost ends up being used against us in a way. Mm -hmm. And then from a parenting perspective, I think it's really important looking at it from a conscious parenting perspective. And I'm, I'm going to read actually a quote from a book that I'm working on for mothers. And it's our children's defiance and acting out is often less about them and more about giving voice to the pain, the silent tears and shouts of anger of the silenced and forgotten child within ourselves. Hmm. Wow. So it feels to me in my own experience is that until we're doing our healing work and we're reclaiming our anger and embodying it, we will can end up being triggered by our children's expressions of anger. We can end up being reactive when what they're needing is for us to be responsive and able to help them to co-regulate. And because our own fight response is, is getting triggered or on the other side of it, we can become really permissive and kind of go into that freeze mode or that flee mode because we're overwhelmed by it. And we're so disconnected. So we're not using the power that anger has to offer us. And so then we're not able to set and hold healthy boundaries for our children. Mm-hmm. And then wow. we can't teach and empower them to be able to see the value in their anger and their right to their boundaries. Right. Right. So I really noticed a shift in my daughter in terms of I was concerned I could see some of those same people pleasing traits in her as I had as a, as a little girl. And I really noticed that the more that I was able to connect to my anger as part of my healing work, that I see that coming out in her more now. And I can coach her now in terms of 
anger is a good thing and now how do we express it in safe and healthy ways um, and I think that's it's so important for our daughters and for our sons as, as well to support them in seeing the benefits of anger but then to be able to express it in safe and healthy ways absolutely yeah and that that brings up a lot of points just to unpack some of what you're saying there when it comes to parenting, I think based on our own, the way that our parents raised us, of course, and mm-hmm. also the the level of how they expressed their anger towards us when we were kids. And I mean, I realized that I was having that, I was starting to see that pattern myself when mm-hmm. uh, my kids were really, really young. Fortunately, I was like able to say to myself, like, this doesn't, feel productive and it doesn't feel right. I feel like I, it started to trigger the memories of my parents and the shouts of anger. Like I lived in a home that was, um, it wasn't physical domestic violence, but it was emotional and verbal abuse. And so right. a lot of those displays of anger, I remember thinking when I have a relationship, I don't want conflict, right? And so When I had kids and I realized growing up also as a control freak myself, (laughs) I like to say that I'm uh, recovering. I'm a recovering control freak. But when my kids were like not doing what I wanted them to do, which has been such a big shift now with consent parenting, you know, I would get really upset and angry and like the sort of elevating my voice and I would see them like get scared and realize, oh my God, like I'm starting to repeat a pattern that I definitely don't want. And I had to start like going inward to figure where was that coming from? What was that anger all about? And a lot of it had to do with realizing I didn't have control before trying to have control. Like, so that was an interesting realization. And one of the things that actually helped me open my eyes to conscious parenting and then consent parenting, because really it's about letting go of a lot of that control. Absolutely. You know, so yeah. Yeah, I can really relate actually to to what you're saying as well. And coming back to realizing that at that developmental stage for myself, when it was supposed to be a time of um, developing my own autonomy, there was too much chaos going on in my life. So then I didn't, I didn't know how to respond to, you know, to their increasing autonomy. It Mm -hmm. it was threatening to me. Yeah. 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 And it's interesting because I believe that when we're a lot of times we're dealing with our own anger, it can be scary Mm. in part because like I said, you know, you may not have been taught or you may have been taught like to not be angry because being angry is bad. And you saw examples of what that was in your home life. But Mm. then that like, if you do get angry, it like compounds the feelings of shame and guilt, which are already unnecessary. So what do you say to survivors who are afraid of their anger and are just not even sure how to express it because it's there, but, and when you do express it, like you said, it goes inward. So it can become depression and anxiety Mm -hmm. and all sorts of other negative emotions that really do start to feel toxic, but you still have that anger there. Like, how do you express it? What do you do with it? What do you tell people who have those feelings that, they know it's there and it needs to be released, but they just don't know how. And sometimes if they do release it, it comes out, like you said, reactive and negative. So it makes Mm -hmm. it even more scary. For sure. So always validating all of their, all of their emotions, all of their experiences. And I think you touched on this earlier, 
looking at what messages that they got, what they've internalized now with regards to anger. Often, you know, as girls, we get messages like, you know, put up, shut up, good girls don't get mad, you know, to be pleasers. Mm -hmm. And so we have to kind of look at some of those messages and where some of that fear is not actually us being afraid of our anger, but being taught to be afraid of our anger. Mm. And then the other piece would be what's been modeled for us in our homes. So if we've seen unhealthy expressions, unsafe expressions of anger in terms of verbal or physical violence, then that is going to, again, make us make that association and think that that's the only way that anger can be expressed. And that's where you often get that the tendency to avoid conflict, right? Because the thought is that then conflict is not safe, it's dangerous, which is not actually true. It's just, it's how we engage in conflict, right? Which mm. determines whether it's safe or not. Um, conflict, healthy conflict, where there's mutual respect and active listening and trying to understand one another, that can actually bring people closer together. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, a lot of us didn't have that modeled for us. Right, right. So understanding where the fear is coming from and how much of it is our own fear, how much is it a reaction maybe to how we were treated when we tried to express our anger. So that can happen sometimes where there's verbal or physical abuse in, in reaction, and that's a way of further trying to control. And so there's going to be then a body reaction, right? And again, one often of inhibiting because that's associated then with something bad happening. And in which case, one of the big things that I do with clients is a process of teaching them to really discern past from present. And I use Yvonne Dolan's four steps for dealing with flashbacks to help with this. So we can have that mindful awareness of what's going on, what the triggers are. We can see how these situations are similar in some way or the relationships are similar in some way. And then the next two points are so important for the discernment and that's how is it different? How right. is the situation different? How is the relationship different? How am I different? Like what, what resources and options and ways to protect yourself do you have available now that you didn't have then? Right. And then, and then what, what are those options, right? Like a lot of times, unfortunately, well, in all cases, when it comes to abuse or assault, we didn't have that option to be able to get away and protect ourselves, right? Something, you know, there was a violation that occurred that was against our will. And so that, that belief or that imprinting in terms of that being still that freeze response is very common and so it's just you know it's important for us to remember that we do have different options and choices mm -hmm. so we don't have to feel as threatened by conflict in that sense i think that that's a really significant point because that requires a level of awareness that mm -hmm. we almost have to practice when we're not being triggered um, absolutely mindfulness body scans although this can be very triggering for survivors, especially if there's been complex trauma, ongoing trauma. That's obviously something that is going to take a lot of work. And usually you need someone to be with you to help you learn to tolerate more of that calm affect and to be able to, you know, slowly 
get comfortable with connecting to the body. But that's, right. yeah, that's where it starts, right? Being able mm -hmm. to step back and have more of that awareness. And the wonderful thing about mindfulness is that research shows that it actually shrinks the amygdala, which is hmm. the fear center part of the brain. Hmm. So That's fascinating. We, yeah, so then we're not as quick to react, to sense that danger, right? It's almost like it buys us a little bit more time to assess the situation. Yeah. And one of the things that I'm encouraging my clients to do, especially right now, because there's a heightened sense of threat and danger is that it's bringing up a lot of people's old traumas and mm -hmm. old trauma reactions is to take time every day, even multiple times a day, to really root into their present safety. Mm -hmm. So right now in this moment, I am alive. I survived everything that happened to me. And even though there's this scary news out there, my heart's beating. I am well. You know, I was sick recently and I would remind myself, this is temporary. <laughs> you know, anything that we can do to help root us back into that present safety will help to calm the nervous system mm -hmm. so that we can then approach these situations more able to discern and more able to be really grounded in present. Right. And you said that there were four and I apologize, I cut you off because mm -hmm. I got so excited to, <laughs> to touch on that topic. But uh, no so what was, what was the fourth that you said uh, you were on number three and, and um... yeah, so the, the fourth one is just what are your options and choices? What do you need now, right, to, to support yourself? What do you need to remind yourself? What object maybe do you want to hold with you that helps bring you back into present awareness? So something that you have now that you wouldn't have had then. So a common one, especially for survivors where it was child um, sexual abuse, is holding their car keys. You know, that's a, that's a symbol of them being adults now, but it also symbolizes that they have freedom, they have right. independence, they have a way to, to get away. So sometimes those grounding objects can be really helpful, as well as, like I said, just looking at what options and choices that they have now. So that yeah. it's, more, it's more empowering and it's more responsive as opposed to feeling, you know, like they have to be on that defense and on guard. Yeah. 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 I like that. And, you know, you and I talked about too a little bit around the social cultural context of women's anger. And mm -hmm. I think this is so important. And a book I read recently um, by Rebecca Traster called Good and Mad, The Revolutionary Power of Women's Anger. Hmm. It was so good because, you know, what it talked about is that women's anger has the power to not just create personal change when we can heal through it and transform it and use it as fuel, but also social change. Mm -hmm. And so the patriarchy, the white men in power, they know this. And so that's part of why we've been shamed. And our anger has been something that has either been minimized or we've even been, especially women of color, dehumanized for that expression of mm -hmm. anger. And so then women are taught to police each other and end up being pitted against each other in terms of their expressions of anger. Yes. And I've, I've really seen this play out when it comes to white women 
reacting to black women and indigenous women and women of color's anger. And it's um, challenging it, criticizing it, rather than validating their right to be angry and not only validating it, but also seeing the benefits that that anger has in terms of being able to create that change that we so desperately need in this world. So, so, so very true. I couldn't agree with you more on all of that. And you're right. I think that uh, it's something I didn't even realize that we have been policing each other because I think people feel uncomfortable by it. You know, they're just not sure how to respond to it. And that was actually part of my next question is that I think most survivors, whether it's about trauma or, or really anything else, are told to get over things that happened a long time ago. Like, why are you still angry about that? Why do you think this is the response that survivors hear when they talk about their trauma or, or how survivors respond to these kinds of, like, I mean, how can survivors respond to these comments, I guess is my question, because it tends to make you more angry. <laughs> you know, Absolutely. they're like, don't be so angry. Well, you know what, that just pissed me off even more. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's secondary wounding, right? Mm -hmm. It's like being re-traumatized all over again, right? We all want to be seen and heard and validated. And a lot of times the experience of the survivor is one that happens in isolation and they are either don't tell anyone for fear of the impacts and the people around them or they tell someone and they're not believed, right? So it's incredibly, it's incredibly hurtful. And I, I think the most important thing to remember as a survivor is that those reactions are not about you, your value, your worth, or the validity of your experience. Mm -hmm. So I think it comes from ignorance, <laughs> not understanding the neurobiology of trauma. It also comes from not wanting to be vulnerable, mm -hmm. not wanting to admit that we can't fully control everything that happens in our lives. And therefore, we can't 100% guarantee that we are going to be okay, and that mm. we're not going to be hurt or violated in some way. So I think that's part of why people cling to certain aspects of victim blaming, because mm -hmm. they're trying to protect themselves, right? I think there's also comparative suffering that Brené Brown has talked about. And it's sort of where we can minimize another person's experience in regards to our own or vice versa, we minimize our own. So just because you're talking to someone who is a survivor doesn't mean that they are able to fully respect and honor your experience. If they haven't done their own healing work, they might actually find, you know, your anger very triggering, hmm. even more triggering than maybe than someone who hasn't, right? And for people, whether they've had an experience or not, of a violation that they can relate to. If they, if it's someone that really cares about you, it's going to, seeing you hurting and in pain is going to trigger their anxiety. They're gonna, especially if they think they're supposed to do something to make right. you feel better. Unfortunately, you know, we have this misconception that we're supposed to fix it or make people feel better as opposed to just being with people in their experiences and validating their experiences. So when we're in that anxious state, we're more likely not to respond appropriately. Mm. Yeah. So there's yeah. Lot, lots of reasons, right? Why you end up having this secondary wounding. But 
I think what is really helpful for survivors is to prepare for the worst in the sense of acknowledging that that could happen. You might not get what you need when you share your story, but to not take it personally and to give yourself permission to stop a conversation partway through. So again, that rooting and grounding into present safety and discerning past from present is so important to remember, hey, I have options and choices here. Mm-hmm. I don't have to you know, continue this conversation. I think it's also really important to identify what you need ahead of time. What helps? Because it's different for everyone. And the more clear that we can be on, you know, what it is that we're looking for from another person when we're sharing with them, then it takes that guesswork out. And it's not 100% guarantee, but we're more likely to get our needs met. Right, right. If we tell them ahead of time, right, this, this is what this is what I'm looking for. Yes, yes, exactly. This episode is brought to you by Consent Parenting, my online platform for survivor parents to learn how to keep their kids safe from abuse. Did you know that 90% of child sexual abuse happens at the hands of people that the child knows and trusts? And 30% of those cases are by family members. Child sexual abuse is also the most underreported crime because kids don't think they'll be believed or are not given the action plan for how to get help when they are being abused. This is why I created the most robust safety network guide so you can empower your family. Download my free ultimate safety network step-by-step guide and poster so you can give your kids the blueprint for how to get help if they are in an unsafe situation. Go to consentparenting.com forward slash safety network or find the link in the show notes to get your free guide today. Now, let's get back to the show. I so strongly believe in that real clear communication piece because a lot of people they just don't know how to deal with other people's grief I mean I've Mm -hmm. certainly that's happened to me where you know someone's told me something happened to them and I wasn't sure what they wanted like I assumed which I think is what most people assume is that when someone tells you about something bad that happened to them that they're seeking some kind of comfort to fix it. But really, most of the time, unless they tell you otherwise, they just want someone to hear them out. And I think that for people who do respond in a way that they're like, maybe it's just, it was so long ago, you should let that go. They're just trying to deal with their own discomfort and not knowing what it is that the person disclosing is actually needing and not also having the sort of wisdom to ask, how can I support you with this? So I think it's great advice to let someone know, figure out what it is that you hope to get in this exchange and be clear if you can about about that ahead of time, because a lot of times you're going to get responses that aren't what you had hoped for or expected. And, And I love what you said about you have the right to end the conversation and just say, this isn't, uh, this isn't what I wanted from this conversation or it's not, you know, maybe we can pick this up at another time, but this isn't, uh, this isn't helping in, in what I need from this. So I think that that's great. And it's part of, like you said, that grounding of knowing that you have the right to 
control that situation in a sense, I guess you could say, like mm-hmm. not just be a, a bystander, like being sort of. Yeah, not being passive, but being yeah. able to be assertive, right? Yeah. yeah. And ask for, ask for what you need. And I also think it's important to sit back and really ask yourself realistically, is this person able to give me what I need? Because sometimes we already know that they mm-hmm. can't. Mm-hmm. You know, and especially in our closer relationships, you know, say family members, for example, they weren't able to support us when we were younger. It's not impossible that, you know, they may not have been able to have grown and, and done their own work. But a lot of times, unfortunately, they're still stuck that, you know, maybe they have their own traumas that they haven't addressed or their own defenses against shame in terms of what they weren't able to do to protect you at the time. Mm, And so what I have encouraged clients to do, which can be really empowering, is instead to write letters that you don't send. Mm. And so I call the first letter sort of the no-holds-barred letter. You know, this is where you just let it all out. You can swear. You can you just honor all of that Be in, because anger is about injustice, right? So yeah. you can let yourself just release all of that, the unfairness, the injustice of it. And then you write yourself the ideal response, mm-hmm. what you wish other people could have said to you at the time or could say to you now. You offer that to yourself. And so then, regardless of what you get from other people, you've got that, that inner support and that self-compassion mm. and that validation that it doesn't matter as much. I love that. I love that. Yeah, I think that that's, has so much power and it opens the door to realizing that you, you needing what you can give yourself is actually there. and. Mm-hmm. It is that self-compassion and self-love. And you can open the door to that just from, from that exercise. I love that. And it's empowering too, right? Because yeah. you don't have to wait for, for anyone else to, to get it. You can move through this process and it doesn't necessarily have to affect your relationship with that other person. Because as we open up to these bigger cultural, sociocultural issues, and we see some of the generational trauma and the legacy burdens, we can have sort of an and experience when it comes to how we relate to those people. You know, they didn't give me what I needed and they did the best they could with what they knew at the time, mm-hmm. right? So sometimes I think people worry that if I let myself feel this anger, it's going to sever a relationship with someone that I don't want to not have my mother in my life, for example. Right. Um, And so I think just remembering that, you know, you can move through the process personally without it having to necessarily have that, that all or nothing kind of Mm -hmm. impact on, you know, on the relationship. Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally agree. There's so much that's a part of that. I mean, I think that, there are so many layers of anger and there's so many ways that we can express it and who we can express it to. So I think all of that was, was truly helpful. So thank you for all of that. I wanted to switch gears for a second because I was really intrigued by your Instagram bio. 
that says holistic psychotherapist, author, Reiki, poet, wounded healer, humble warrior. Talk to me about what you mean by wounded healer and humble warrior. So I was trying to find a way to capture the essence of my posts and what I sort of feel my purpose is in terms of my writing. And so I think that there's a danger sometimes in seeing uh, people like therapists or healers as experts, quote unquote. And I don't believe in that. I believe that we are each the experts on ourselves and that we are all beautiful works in progress. And I believe that we're willing to show up and share our own journeys, our own struggles, our, you know, our own messy times that, you know, that helps to reduce shame for other people and just reminds us that we're all human on this journey. So that's the big piece that that conscious parenting journey for me and the layers of of healing that I've done that that uh, I share in my posts and the book that I'm working on. And the warrior part that represents my connection to anger and how that has fueled me to be more actively involved in social justice work and allyship work. So I've been a therapist for between 15 and 20 years now, a very long time. And honestly, it was only really recently, like I less than five years probably, and I'm not proud of myself, but it, it's just, it helps me to realize just how insidious white supremacy is, right? I hadn't really thought about the intersectional aspects of violence against women. I was doing this work, but I wasn't really thinking about that particular piece, right? I was kind of in my little white privilege bubble. And as I was able to connect with and heal through some of my own pain and reconnect with my own anger, then I could start to really open my eyes to collective pain and start to really see the injustices on a much larger scale. So the humble part for me is because as a white woman, I have so much unconscious bias and I know that when I write, I may inadvertently use language that is, you know, that could be offensive in some way. I'm learning every day what harms and what helps. And so just that, you know, I'm, I'm not a good white woman who has all the answers, but I am really trying to work to, to learn through friendships and mentorships with black and indigenous and women of color how to be a better, you know, to be a better ally and to really honor more and speak more and, and write more about that intersection between, between race and, um, and violence against women. Hmm. Well, I, I truly appreciate that you do that work and all of the collective experience that you've gathered to bring to the table and help in this, in this fight. And I have to say that I, you know, I really resonate with that title in a sense of a humble warrior because recently, and I, we were just talking about this before we started recording, that the current state of the world and all of the collective suffering that's going on and a lot and knowing that there are a lot of people suffering violence right now in their homes has really triggered a lot 
in me, particularly related to anger. So I thought it was just so fitting that we were going to be doing this interview. And as I've been doing more, I've never been a really like uh, act like athletic person, but recently found that I needed to like move, like I was feeling this anger building inside of me and I wasn't sure how to, I'm actively doing work that deals with triggering topics for me being a survivor. And I go regularly to a therapist and I do other kinds of grounding exercises that help me regulate as I get work on things that are triggering because I want to make sure that I can continue doing this work. With all of that said, I felt this anger rising in me and found that moving my body a lot more, whether that was running in place or dancing or going outside and and moving my body was helping me with that. And it helped me actually process some of that anger into some very interesting revelations about my own past and my own history. And it all kind of culminated recently with this sense of feeling like I am somehow turning into a warrior against, mm. uh, against perpetrators and yeah. this sort of sense of mission to, to do everything in my power to not let, you know, offenders and, and sexual perpetrators continue hurting children and women. And like, I felt so empowered by this visualization of myself as this like warrior against perpetrators, right? And so embodying that and like having this sense of greater purpose has actually come out of this whole trying to deal with my anger. So I just really like connect with everything that you're saying and and the work that you're doing. And I totally appreciate you being an ally in this space, particularly for Black, Indigenous, and people of color, and particularly those with trauma, and and that you're doing that work with your practice and everything that you do. And I I really love how you share that also on Instagram. You know, I follow you there. Tell me a little bit about what inspires you with the content that you put up, because I know it's relevant to the times and it's relevant to, like you said, you know, the humble warrior and and wounded healer. But I find that your work is also kind of like evolving and very self like reflective and a lot of introspection. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. So I loved what you said about the importance of moving your body first. I just want to say because anger does like it is fuel. It, it creates energy and we need to get that energy out. And as we're moving our body, we're feeling into our strength. Mm-hmm. And so then that can translate too into just feeling so much more empowered, right? Because oh, we've been taught that we are, are weak and to be scared. And when we've had experiences of violation, that reinforces that, you know, that message. And so anytime that we can move our body and feel into our physical strength, I think it's a great way to, to take our power back. And mm-hmm. I just think that the work that you're doing is such a beautiful example of how we transform that, um, that anger, mm, thank and, you. you know, into education and empowerment and change. Mm-hmm. Right. And there's, there's so many, there's so many examples of that going on. And you know, as Glennon Doyle says, if you are angry, it doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you. It doesn't mean that you're crazy. It means you're paying attention. 
Yes. Right? And so our culture also gives us lots of ways to distract ourselves Mm -hmm. and to numb ourselves, right? And I think it is so that we're not paying attention to these greater injustices. So for me, a number of years ago, I gave up alcohol and then I gave up meat and it was like less, less things to stuff down, right? Mm -hmm. And I would try to do some mindful meditation every day and just kind of notice themes. So sometimes my writing will come from experiences with my children and themes that I've noticed in terms of applying the lessons of conscious parenting in particular and self-compassion, how that um, has translated into this mothering journey feeling a lot easier although every day (laughs) presents new challenges, right? But not having that same degree of self-criticism and shame um, that, Mm -hmm. uh, that I carried in, you know, in the beginning. And then just looking at and watching kind of what's going on. And I do a lot of personal reflective writing first, and often it'll be questions. You know, I'll let myself feel, as a highly sensitive person, I'll let myself feel the anger, the heartbreak, the confusion, and just sit with that for a little bit. And I might ask like, why questions or how questions or, you know, I don't have the answers in that moment. And then I then seem to find the next challenge or the next book or the next inspiration. You know, as they say, when the student is ready, the teacher appears, right? Right. And I, you know, that was exactly what happened with Layla Saeed's Me and White Supremacy Challenge. Mm. Uh, I had come back from, I was on our regional um, sexual assault response team, and I had come back from a meeting, and I was just, I was so filled with sorrow and rage, and really thinking about the intersectionality of violence, and and I just, I just didn't know what to do with any of it, and I just wrote about it, and I was like, you know, how do we change this? This is so wrong. You know, such high rates of, of abuse, sexual abuse and exploitation and human trafficking against marginalized girls and women. And it was shortly after that, that she put up her challenge on Instagram and I just went all in and it mm-hmm. was, it was hard. It was really, really hard, but it was also so healing. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think that a lot of my inspiration comes with being willing to connect to my, you know, my own pain as well as to look out there and, and connect to, to collective pain. Yeah, I I am regularly inspired, and I'm definitely gonna, of course, put all of the links for people to connect with your content and just really engage with it because I think that there are some powerful questions that you reflect on and that you ask others to reflect on. So I think it's definitely an account that should be continued to be followed as as you evolve, because I can see that the, the transformation in your content, even, you know, even in the last like couple of months. So mm-hmm. I, I think that uh, it shows your own personal growth. And it's just awesome. But before well, we thank you so much, I I do have to give a quick shout out to a dear friend of mine who's also a mentor and I've been in her uh, online circle, Sacred, Asha Frost, and I think mm. you interviewed her a while ago. I think 
being part of that community and the healing that um, that I've been able to participate in, I think that's really helped me to feel more comfortable and safe even to open up and share because it's really locked a lot for me. And I think safe from like a patriarchal kind of perspective in terms of some of the the things that I've I've worked through, and then just to allow myself to honor that voice and to you know to be more brave and as as both an ally as well as as a conscious parent. Yeah, yeah, and definitely a shout out to Asha and her community. It, it's definitely a welcoming and safe space, and that's actually how we ended up meeting was through Asha. Actually, I think. That's right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so. Before we we finish up, I always ask all of my guests for a piece of advice that they would like to offer the audience regarding any of the three main topics that I discuss on the podcast, which are consent, boundaries, and sexual reclamation. And so I would like to ask you, which of those three would you like to offer some sage advice about? Okay, well, boundaries is one of my favorite things to talk to clients about because I think boundaries get such a bad rap. So first off, I just say boundaries are not mean. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We're not selfish. They are beautiful and they are necessary and they protect not only us as individuals, but they protect our relationships Mm -hmm. because without boundaries, resentment is going to build and resentment is toxic. And so boundaries can really help to preserve the relationship and to strengthen and transform the relationship, especially partner relationship into more of an equal relationship. And I think in order to teach and respect our children's right to have and hold boundaries, we have to reclaim our own. And we do that by reconnecting to our anger. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I couldn't agree more. Yes. And it's interesting because you're right. I think most people think that if they, they're afraid to enforce or even implement a boundary because they think it's going to ruin a relationship or it's going to, you know, maybe that person's going to stop talking to them. But, you know, what I've been learning over the years is that boundaries are actually expressions of love. Like if you respect someone, you're going to honor the boundaries that they set and I think that if we start to shift our perspective from boundaries are bad and that means that you're preventing me from doing something, it's like you're just asking for what you need and you're making yourself heard, which is so important. So yeah, thank you for that. So how can people connect with you? I Obviously, Instagram, I'll post the, the mm-hmm. links in the show notes, but how else can people connect with you and your work? And, and also the fact that you're going to be have a book coming out. So I want to make sure that people stay connected with you. Yeah. So Instagram is probably where I'm most consistent. I also have a Facebook page, Peace and Possibility. So I believe that world peace begins with inner peace. So it kind of has both of those. It has more articles and videos because obviously that's not something we share so much on Instagram. So, and those are both good news kind of stories and examples of kindness and generosity in the world, as well as the social injustices as well. Kind of a bit of both, as well as some of my poetry. I do have a link tree, which has, and you can get to that from my Instagram. And that has links to different uh, published writing that I've done. And then there's also a few different free things that, that people can sign up for if they want. So one that would be probably really helpful for 
survivors in the audience is something I created called Care for Caregivers. And mm. so it was a, a little exercise that we did for a week. And basically it was each day we focused on a different sense and just really micro, simple, little practices connected to that sense to help bring more of a feeling of peace and calm to, to the nervous system. So I think mm -hmm. right now with, with all the yes. extra stress, that could be, you know, that could be very handy for, for folks. And of course, people can DM me. I work for a nonprofit organization and did have plans to start a little bit of private work in a small clinic, but that's kind of been put on hold indefinitely while all of this is going on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, this has thrown a monkey wrench into mm -hmm. everyone's plans. I certainly had uh, a lot of different things that were going to be happening in April that have not, <laughs> have not unfolded. So, but that sounds amazing. And I will put all of those links in the show notes so everyone can connect with you. So thank you so, so very much for taking the time and sharing all this really powerful information. I think that there were so many golden nuggets that I know for me, even, you know, like sometimes because I'm in this work so often, I'm like, oh, I, you know, and know so much. And you get hit with like, you don't <laughs> because, you know, it's like we, we, we have to remember, I think that there is just so much in the world and so many people's experiences and everyone brings richness to the table. And I, I love being a sponge and I love connecting with people who have different experiences and different perspectives and particularly with relation to how people process after trauma. I just think that there's just not enough people talking about this. So I always appreciate when someone is willing to share, share as much as they can to help others in this space. So thank you so much for coming on and doing that today. Well, thank you so much for having me. And thank you so much for the, the work that you're doing, the awareness that you're bringing and the empowerment for parents. I, you absolutely are a warrior and <laughs> I you. hold your vision of, you know, of eradicating sexual violence and exploitation. I hold it deep in my heart. And uh, so it's a, it's a real honor and a pleasure to be able to share with your community. Thank you. I appreciate you. Well, listeners, we would love to hear what your feedback is about today's episode. Was there anything that really resonated with you? What were your biggest takeaways? Screenshot this episode, tag us on Instagram, share it with your friends. Let's create consent culture. That's what this is all about. Until next week, I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. Don't miss the next episode. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast. And I would be so grateful if you took one minute to post a five-star rating and reviews on iTunes so that others can also find this information. I will be shouting you out and thanking you on the next episode. If you found this useful, be sure to share it with others as well. Let's continue to create consent culture one conversation at a time. Stay empowered.